You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Bowery Boys, episode 138, St. Mark's in the Bowery. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We have an unusual episode for you today. Uh, I'm not even sure how to frame it. Why is it unusual, Greg? Well, we have a standard topic here that branches through all of New York history from the beginnings of New Amsterdam till today. That would be St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. But it's more than just this church, which is an amazing building, which you're going to hear all about. However, we have a little bit of a call to action with this particular show. If you're listening to this show in May of 2012, we are working with the Partners in Preservation Initiative, which is basically a program where American Express, in partnership with the National Trust of Historic Preservation, will be awarding grant money to historic places throughout New York. There are 40 nominees for this. You can go to our website, Bowery Boys Podcast, for more information on how to vote. But one of the nominees is today's topic, St. Mark's Church on the Bowery. And we were able to choose from any of these 40 topics, some of which, if you go to the website, you will notice we have covered in previous podcasts. And we'll be covering, and we don't have one specific course in this race, but we have a soft spot for this particular historical site. And we'll repeat this information at the end of the podcast. We just wanted to get it up front so that if you only listen to half the show, (laughs) you knew that maybe you'd want to hang in there because your vote could make a big difference, not just for St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, but for 39 other places as well. Now, the secret to the history of St. Mark's on the Bowery is that the current structure traces to an older chapel that was built by one of our favorite historical figures on this show, Peter Stuyvesant. So we'll be starting with Peter Stuyvesant's farm, giving some details about a curious and forgotten village that developed right next to the farm, and leading you through an extremely unusual history. I have some of the craziest stories that I have ever collected for Ooh. a podcast here. I am That's hard to believe. I'm dying to rip into this, so... And one side note, as if we needed one more caveat here up front... But we are recording this on May 1st, 2012. It's May Day, and there are all manner of protests happening And in conjunction with Occupy Wall Street and May Day. So you may hear the buzz and whirl of helicopters overhead as we're recording. At first, we were afraid that this would 
bother the recording of this podcast or even you, our listener. Until we realize that St. Mark's has actually a very deep history with activism and with protests and with the artistic scene of the East Village in the 20th century. So those choppers have never, <laughs> never been more appropriate. So come with us as we frolic through Peter Stuyvesant's farm and explore the history of St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. All right, Greg. Well, before we head straight to the farm and then to the church, Mm -hmm. perhaps you can situate us on today's show? Of course. You know, this will be a story about Peter Stuyvesant, the longest-serving director general of New Amsterdam, but will be principally concerned with a church that he built on his property, or rather a a church that replaced an original chapel. The current St. Mark's Church in the Bowery is located at 131 East 10th Street. That's actually at the intersection of 2nd Avenue and Stuyvesant Street. Mm -hmm. Because Stuyvesant Street, which I believe we mentioned in our Grid podcast, is what appears to be a diagonal street that cuts between 2nd and 3rd Avenues across 10th and 11th Streets. At this point, of course, it's nice to look at a map. We have a little handout here um, that Greg and I are looking at, but uh, pull it up on Google Maps and, and you'll see what we're talking about here. The present structure dates back to the 18th century. There's the main chapel itself, and there are two courtyards on either side. Those courtyards are vaults, which contain over a thousand graves, including those of many prominent New Yorkers. And I should add that the name of the church is St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, which doesn't make any sense. Not on the Bowery. Not on the Bowery, because it really isn't on the Bowery, like the the road named the Bowery. Bowery is the old Dutch word for farm. I believe the original way you say the word is Bowerway. Bowerway. Is what? This sounds... um... Bowerway. 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 Like Bowerway. So we would be the Bowerway boys. Like Charlotte Ray. Like more of a focus on the last part of the syllable. So it was literally a church in the farm or in the farmland of Peter Stuyvesant. So that's, that's where the name derives from. Right. But why don't we get a little background here on Stuyvesant since he's going to be really leading us through this adventure. And Greg, we do make reference and jokes in many of our podcasts about the subjects going all the way back to Peter Stuyvesant. Well, this one actually does go back to Peter Stuyvesant and his family and sticks with his family through the 1950s. We do have episode 14 devoted to Peter Stuyvesant, which we tackled pretty early on there, back when we were doing one one a week. I was going to say, it's a very difficult topic to take on so early. I mean, now we have, like, Peter Stuyvesant flows through my veins, so mm. it might make sense to talk about it now. But, but Tom, why don't you give us even a little quick, a quick su- bio. A summary, yes. Well, so let's pull back to New York City being settled in the early 1600s as the city of New Amsterdam which was the capital of the New Netherlands. Now, bear with me here. You all know this, but there <laughs> might be somebody who this, this is news it's to. It's important here. This colony was run by the Dutch West India Company, a for-profit company that was making money by sending furs and other exports back to the Netherlands. 
the colony was founded in 1625. There were directors being sent over from Amsterdam to head this colony. Because it's a company town and not a typical colony of the sorts that were developing up in New England. Right. And these were appointed leaders. These were not elected by the people. Mm -hmm. So first we had William Verhust in 1625, then Peter Minuitz, who took over in 1626, all the way up to 1642, where we had William Kieft. And then finally, in 1647, five years later, Kieft was replaced by Peter Stuyvesant, who was the final director. And Stuyvesant would remain the director throughout the Dutch period, which would end in 1664, when the colony was taken over by the English and became, of course, New York. Now, New Amsterdam was a little bit of a Wild West sort of town. Uh, It was rather mismanaged. There was a bit of debauchery. I mean, these were, again, company men and mostly men. It needs an iron fist, or rather it needed a wooden leg. (laughs) And that wooden leg was strapped to young Peter, Mm -hmm. or Petrus, who was born in 1612, although we're not exactly sure. That's the date that he's allotted. In the Netherlands, he was the son of a Dutch Reformed church minister, which is very fitting given today's podcast, and started working for the West India Company when he was in his 20s, in the 1630s. He led a mission on the island of Curaçao. While he was there, he attacked the Spanish colony at the island of St. Martin. A battle ensued, a cannonball was lodged, he was injured, and he lost his leg. He was sent back to Amsterdam, where he was nursed back to health by his new wife, who he married in 1645, Judith Bayard, back in Amsterdam. Because of this, he walked with a wooden pin for one of his legs. They called him Old Silver Leg and Peg Leg Pete. But Stuyvesant was still working for the West India Company, and from 1647, he was sent to New Amsterdam to take over and to really get that crazy colony whipped into shape. He wasn't the most well-loved man. He instilled a lot of important new policies. And right from the beginning, that same year, he established the nine men, a council of nine people representative of the colony who would report to him, who would pass judgments on things. And he would frequently ignore their advice. And threaten to abolish them. (laughs) But still, they were there, and they hadn't been there before his rule. Right, representation. He was also a very firm believer in education. He hired lots of teachers, uh, established a grammar school, he opened free schools. And this would be a reason that hundreds of years later, New York City would name a high school after him, New York Stuyvesant High School. Not to mention he also improved the infrastructure with the creation of things like the wall along Wall Street. Right. But alas, this Dutch period was not to last for long. In 1664, King Charles II of England granted this entire territory of, of New Netherlands to his brother, James II. But wasn't this Dutch territory? I mean, how could he just grant this? It, there would certainly be a war, right? Of course. But there wasn't a war. Stuyvesant actually settled this without a fight for many different reasons. The people of New Amsterdam didn't want to get into a gigantic battle. They were fearful of their lives, and frankly, they didn't care who their master was at this point. So Stuyvesant settled without a fight. He signed over the land on September 9th, 1664 to the English, and the city of New Amsterdam was renamed New York City. Now, He signed that document, Greg, on his family farm, or as you said, (laughs) Brewerie. 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 
which was in fact outside the city limits. This was his family estate, this huge amount of land outside of New Amsterdam proper. Now, how did he get here? How did he manage to buy all of this land? Well, let's keep in mind here that the city pretty much ends at where Wall Street is. You have little tiny settlements and little farms right outside of that around Collect Pond. Mm -hmm. There is the oldest road in Manhattan, the Bowery Road. Now, the Dutch had allotted small portions of this to be farmed for the city around today's 14th Street. So the land that we'll be talking about here with Peter, um, about two miles outside of the city. It was very swampy land, grazing field. It had been in the hands of the Dutch West India Company as early as Peter Keefe, so even before Peter Stuyvesant was there. However, by the time we get to New York here, Peter Stuyvesant now owns a lot of that property. He buys it up from the company, this one particular allotment called Bowery Number 1. So while he's still director general of New Amsterdam, he moves his family, including wife Judith and his sons Nicholas Balthazar and Peter Jr., he moves them up to this area in 1651 and develops his own personal farm, including a manor house. And just to put it in in terms of today's Manhattan Island, we're roughly talking about the East Village. Like, when you say tract of land, it's that big? That's quite a farm. Oh, it's quite huge. It would grow to be about 300 acres. Essentially, it is almost the entirety of the East Village with portions of Gramercy Park and even below where we call the Lower East Side today. The manor house itself sat around 10th Street and 3rd Avenue around 1660. So keep in mind, still when he's director general of New Amsterdam, he's still in charge. He builds a chapel on his little farm. We don't really know what it looks like, but we do know where it sat because it was at the exact spot of the present chapel. So a place of worship has been on that very spot for 350 years. This was a farm in many of the traditional senses. There was livestock, there were crops, and of course, there was famous orchard of his. Apples right over from Holland and pears. You may know the story, Tom, that one of the pear trees mm-hmm. of this particular orchard survived for decades and decades. Long, yes, long after many, many generations of Stuyvesants. It survived at the corner of 3rd Avenue and 13th Street. Like it survived through the grid plan until 1867 when a carriage ran into the tree and it had to be put out of its misery, unfortunately. But you can still find a plaque at that corner. Which is, uh, I believe, where Keels is today, right? I believe you can even buy soaps with little pear tree on it in the Keels. I haven't been... I've seen it before. I, can't, oh. I don't know. This is not an I'll advertisement for I'll just get the Kiehl's. free sample. <laughs> exactly. Do we know today what the streets were? Was it like 5th Street up to 17th or well, something like they that? They were variable, and I'll tell you why. The original border was probably around 5th Street, the western edge would be, of course, today's Bowery. It wouldn't okay. extend further. Because that was the road heading up to it. Sure. But the northern border and the western border would be sort of jagged, I would say, perhaps up to 20th Street, the original farm. But his sons and grandsons throughout the decades here would expand the border even further. So the southern edge would uh-huh. go as far south as Stanton Street. One admirer called this lavish, gigantic farm, quote, a place of relaxation and pleasure. But not to be Debbie Downer here, a lot of this land that they just sort of like scooped up and made it bigger. Oh, what a beautiful farm. They're taking 
taking it from freed slaves. They were called the so-called Negro lots. They would either be bought or taken. That's how the farm essentially grew. Mm -hmm. So when the British arrived and Stuyvesant was kicked out of his job in 1664, he went back to Holland, but came back to the colony of New York and became a New Yorker. So he wanted to spend the rest of his life on this farm that he had developed by this time for over a decade. By holding this huge amount of property in the early days of New York, this would make the Stuyvesant name one of the great old names of New York. The, Even though it was only a couple decades old. But, you know, this is practically one of the progenitors of the original colony here, of the type of old name parodied by Washington Irving as the Knickerbockers. You know, this notion of a landed aristocratic gentry in these days before the formation of the United States, so before these modern concepts of democracy, you had these names that people looked up to almost as if they had different kind of administrative power. Stuyvesant spent his remaining years here. He was revered, respected, a bit of a reputation. He was also a very powerful figure, both imposing and, of course, that wooden leg helps things out here. He would die in 1672, and they would bury him in a vault underneath that family chapel. Over the decades here, there would be a small village that develops around the edge of the farm here. Along the western edge. Along the western edge. Of course, the same thing would be happening to a more permanent degree, I would have to say, a little bit further west in a village called Greenwich. Mm-hmm. So there was another settlement between Peter Stuyvesant's farm and the village of Greenwich. Right. So they, because they developed around estates. There were, of course, West Village estates, too, of other landed gentry of these types. And the Bowery Village was, would develop well into the early 19th century as almost a suburb of New York. And these were people who worked on, on the Stuyvesant farm, who were somehow involved with the farm? It, well, yes and no. Think of it this way. It would coalesce around the area of Astor Place. Astor Place would be a name that would be, of course, not applied until the right. mid-19th century. Like Greenwich Village, it would be seen as a place where people could escape during, for instance, you know, smallpox outbreaks this type of thing. What made it particularly appealing is that there was a marketplace here. Because it was outside of the New York City borders, you could come here as a farmer or you wouldn't or you didn't even have to take your wares all the way down to New York and you wouldn't have to pay any pesky market tax. You could just sell them. So there was a really nice big market. And I believe that the village probably also formed because of that marketplace. So you had like a smithy, a couple very lively taverns around here. And there was even a modest newspaper that was just for the little Bowery village called the Bowery Republican. Wow. And I think they even had their own Whole Foods. <laughs> and only four Starbucks. So, right. That's, that's the Bowery village before all of this happened. Yes, exactly. But roughly in the same spot. But really in this, it's, yes, it's true. Now, it was a li- thriving until like the grid system really sort of dispersed all of that through several generations of Stuyvesants here. So what's going on with the farm? So I mentioned the map handout. I also have a handout, <laughs> Greg, of the lineage, the family tree. Well, that you really do need. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a tangled, tangled roots here. You think I'm joking, but I have it right <laughs> Look at that. I will, I will link to this on the podcast. It's very, it is very intriguing. And um, there's, this was, there's, there's only four or five Peters on here. <laughs> 
Right. They, they really do like a couple names, as you'll find out. But we're going to quickly skip through a couple generations. So Peter had a son, Nicholas William. He died in 1698. He married twice. Now, follow me here. His first wife, Maria Beekman, and we hear some other famous all New York old, family names. All these old names. Had three children who all died young. When she died, he married his second wife, Elizabeth Van Schlechtenhorst. A, a <laughs> that, real mouthful there. That, that one's a less familiar name to me. <laughs> they had five children, the last of whom was Gerardus. Yeah. Gerardus? Yes, Gerardus. <laughs> he married Judith Bayard. And he was involved in the city of New York's uh, politics. He served as an alderman as an, and as a deputy mayor. He had two sons as well, Nicholas William, who never married, and Petrus. Now, Petrus is where the story of the church comes in. Petrus Fourth. Petrus is the great-grandson of Peter Stuyvesant. Petrus, of course, is Peter, just in Latin, and, that, and so he has the same name as his great-grandfather. When Petrus's brother Nicholas William died in 1780, Petrus inherited the entire farm, which was a huge amount of land. His brother was the last one in the family to have lived in the family manor house that you were talking about. It was it, destroyed by fire. Right, in October of 1778. Petrus, on the other hand, lived in his own manor home, which he called Peter's Field, which was roughly, in, in today's grid, between 15th and 16th streets, between 1st and A. And west of Peter's Field, all the way over to the Bowery, was roughly the Bowery Village. Now, in the meantime... Side note here, the family had converted to Episcopalian. All of the prominent families in New York at this time were Episcopal. It made social and political sense to, to change your religious belief, I guess. And we're talking about the 1780s. The British wouldn't even leave New York until 1783. So just after the war in 1787, Petrus got the idea to lay out some of his estate in a grid, in a perfect north-south-east-west grid. Well, the writing was on the wall that the city was moving up here. He might right. as well get started with the development. Right. He could sell off some lots on this vast amount of land that he had and was the sole owner of. So he hired Everett Banker Jr. to lay out this grid in 1787. They were laid out east-west and north-south and aligned like a compass Unlike, later, the Commissioner's Plan, which would follow the axis of Manhattan Island. The North-South were named for Petrus's daughter. So there was Judith, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Cornelia hmm. streets. And the East-West streets were named for the men in the family. So there was Tenbrook, <laughs> Winthrop, Gerard, Governor, Peter, Stuyvesant, Nicholas William, and Verplanck streets. Those are very colorful names for streets. I really wish they were still around. <laughs> Tenbrook. Yeah. And of these, Stuyvesant Street is the only one that survives to this day. You mentioned uh, before that there were these parcels of land uh, outside of New Amsterdam. There was a parcel called Bowery 1 and Bowery 2, these big properties. Mm -hmm. Stuyvesant Street was a street that divided those two. So I think oh, it was already so sort of there. That's why it's maybe still there. So if you look at the map, St. Mark's Church is not really perfectly aligned with 2nd Avenue and 10th Street. It, it doesn't sit locked into today's grid. It's aligned with an old grid. It, it, right. It's aligned with Stuyvesant Street. It faces Stuyvesant Street, which makes a nice little triangle in front of it. But we'll get to that in a second, because that, of course, happened with the commissioner's plan and the new grid that came in. 
So when did this new church get built? Because the old one's been sitting around for a while, and it's a right. little bit in decay, right? Right. It's- in 1793, Petrus donated that chapel to Trinity Church, which is Episcopal. And he also donated 800 pounds for the construction of a new church. The idea here was that it would serve those living in the new village that was developing around around the farm. It would cost more than 800 pounds to build a new church, so Trinity raised another 5,000 pounds for its construction, and the construction would begin in 1795 when they would lay the cornerstone. One of the ways, unsurprisingly, because we've talked about this in every single church podcast we've done, <laughs> one of the ways that they were raising money was by selling off pews, uh, that would be reserved for the families. These the older families, families, these sort of unsavory practice of pew rental by family names. Right. The church's architect was John McComb Jr. Of the City Hall right. fame, I believe. He and another one we've done. Can you name it, Greg? Uh, yes, I, it's in my head. Um, Gracie Mansion. You got it. Yes. And they're even around the same time period here. So they must have been built with just a few within a few years of each other. And and he designed St. Mark's in the Georgian style, which when you look at it, you see it's simple, it's elegant. Gray stones. What we're talking about here is the simple first structure that was built. So get rid of the portico. Don't look at the porch or the steeple on top or the back buildings. And you'll see that that original structure that was designed and consecrated in May of 1799 was a sort of simple two-story building with the two rows of windows down the side and very elegant. This was actually funded by Trinity, was part of Trinity Church, part well, of their parish? Trinity was set up as the original Episcopal parish mm-hmm. in New York City. And St. Mark's was an extension, a chapel, that belonged to that parish. Still way outside of town. Outside of town, right. Serving that community around the farm that was north of the city. However, some members of the church were very prominent citizens who would travel up there to go to that church because that's where the Stuyvesants were going, Mm -hmm. and and that was kind of like an in-church. These included Alexander Hamilton and Richard Harrison, both who were prominent lawyers and... um, Friends of the family, and they thought that St. Mark's deserved to have more autonomy from Trinity. Well, it must have had a different texture because te- because Trinity was in the smack in the middle of town. And this was, you know, still a suburb after all. And after they did a little digging into Trinity's charter, they found a few loopholes that allowed them to establish St. Mark's as an independent Episcopal parish because it wasn't located in the same city as Trinity. In 1800, then... The new parish of St. Mark's hired its first rector as an independent parish. That was Reverend John Callahan. Unfortunately, a couple months later, when he was back home visiting his family in North Carolina, he was killed in a carriage accident. So they went through a couple of new rectors, and finally in 1801, they hired their first long-term rector, that was William Harris, who would serve in that position for the next 15 years. The church was hardly a decade old when this radical change happened to the neighborhood, well, to all of New York. Of course, this grid plan was initiated by DeWitt Clinton and the three commissioners that would be executed throughout the 1810s. Even though we call it the commissioner's plan of 1811, it would take decades for it to actually get carved up. So we would rip out the Stuyvesant grid here, replace it with more uniform streets of numbers and letters, with the exception, of course, of Stuyvesant Street, which was allowed to cut through between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. And do we know why? 
why they kept it in? Because of the church itself uh-huh. is at this angle, and the people who are going to this church, and by that We're time, prominent you, citizens, and by that time, you already have some burials in uh, the yes. vaults, so it just made sense to leave that as it was, and the street in front of it was allowed to remain. Though interesting, that creates a funny little triangle. They called that triangle. Elizabeth Fish's Garden, because it was named after Peter Stuyvesant IV's daughter, Elizabeth, who was married to a man named Nichols Fish. The Fish, they were all intermarried here by this time, the Mm. Fish family and the Stuyvesants. Nicholas Fish was a close friend of Alexander Hamilton, so you see all these variant historical figures being wrapped up into each other here. And Stuyvesant Street today has many landmark residences, some of them that were built around this period. 21 Stuyvesant Street was actually where Nicholas and Elizabeth lived, and that building is still there today. Now, the early years of St. Mark's in the Bowery, it was a prosperous community church. And interesting to note, although this wouldn't last very long, thankfully, the second floor of the chapel, it would have balconies for slaves to come and also participate in the services. Because slavery slavery was only outlawed in New York in 1824. So in the early years of the church, you had this very unusual setup here. It would never be the center of social life that Trinity Church would be. And then in 1843, just a couple blocks away, when the ornate and oh-so-fancy Grace Church was open, that would draw all the more fashionable families and, of course, would charge the highest amount of money for those rentable pews. And by this point, you were talking about the end of the 1840s. The city is really starting to move uptown. That grid is firmly established and land is being developed everywhere. Even a couple decades later, with the arrival of new immigrants, and we create new outreach programs for the church. And so they would, in 1861, create the Mission Chapel over on Avenue A, i.e., the, they would literally call it the Free Church because the regular St. Mark's Church would not technically be free. Well, you didn't have to pay to attend services, did you? You just had to pay to sit in Down below seats. Yes, that was just how they referred to it. Now, I'm going to spend a little time here on the actual structure because it goes through some radical changes. We begin the century here looking like a little stone box, essentially. Mm-hmm. Very, a very Georgian simple. box. Georgian box. Additions were gradually made throughout the 19th century so that by 1900, you almost have the building that you have today. Due to these old Stuyvesant family connections, whoever the hottest developer or architect in the city of the day was seemed to add a little something to the building. So the building has this character that reflects almost the entire city of New York in some way or another. For instance, in 1828 was when that gorgeous steeple was added. It was designed by a man named Martin Euclid Thompson. He would go on that decade to build such things as the Admiral's House out on Governor's Island, and most famously, at least for you and me, I think, the Arsenal, the Central Park Arsenal. Thompson then went on to design further things for the church, including these pillars inside that were in the curious and sometimes forgotten style of Egyptian revival. Mm. There were other buildings of the day in this Egyptian style. The Tombs Prison down downtown was very Egyptian, so it has a little bit of that thrown in there. He would then come back in 1838 and design that iron fence that surrounds the church and is still standing there today, keeping out the crazies. 
1861, there was a brick addition to the back of the church, to the parish hall. That would be designed by James Renwick. Uh. Uh, you, like, if you, you are not a church in this town, if you don't have a little Renwick somewhere in you, because the Grace Church was designed by Renwick. Of course, St. Patrick's is a Renwick construction. The entrance to the church itself, that portico, that beautiful and very unusual portico, which looks like it might be made of stone or something, it's cast iron. Uh, it was built in 1858, and they went to the man who literally patented cast iron. The man, uh, his name was James Bogardus. He was the man who created all these original cast iron structures in New York, which of course would dominate the neighborhoods today of Soho and Tribeca. Although we don't have that many structure, original structures of his. The man was so influential to the styles of buildings in those neighborhoods that there's a park today in Tribeca called the James Bogardus Park. And the church itself, it's just, it's beautiful. There's something very rustic about it. But I do have to say, personally speaking, that a more intriguing element of the church is not the structure itself, but the churchyard. Mm -hmm. Because under this ground is a literal honeycomb of burial vaults. I believe there's well over a thousand and you mentioned that Stuyvesant was himself buried under the chapel that sat where today's church sits. What we haven't mentioned is that subsequent Stuyvesants were also buried here as well, but not just buried, entombed in a crypt. With networks of tunnels that are underneath the entire property and the west and the east yards here. Is the Stuyvesant crypt its own place, or are they all sort of interconnected underneath the... Well, there's over 80 members of the family buried there, but keep in mind we're also talking about the fishes, you know, because they they right. were part of the family as well. In 1807 is when they started allowing people who were not connected to the Stuyvesant family to oh, be buried here. I'll give you a few notable names, because there's really are a lot of prominent people here. One of the most notable is Daniel D. Tompkins, former governor of New York City and a former vice president of the United States. Under James Monroe. Tompkins had a little bit of a bad few years. He had some bankruptcy issues. He had a little bit of a drinking problem. But we honor him today here in New York as the namesake of another great place here in the East Village. Tompkins Square Park, which is located just a couple blocks away. Mm -hmm. Now, he died in 1825 and was entombed here. Two former mayors, Philip Hone and Gideon Lee, are also buried here. Philip Hone, by the way, I call him the party mayor because he's actually best known for his late night dinner parties during the 1820s. You can visit him here. Matthew Perry was buried here. He was the naval officer responsible for introducing Japan to the Western world. He died in 1853. The stone is still here. However, he was moved to his family residence in Rhode Island in 1866. There is another body that is not here, but there is a shocking story associated with it involving oh. grave robbing and ransom money. I bring up the disturbing tale of the afterlife of A.T. Stewart, Alexander T. Stewart, New York's leading dry goods merchant, Basically, the owner of America's first department store, or the one we, we would refer to as the very first department store, which was near City Hall. He was the richest man in New York after the Vanderbilts and the Astors. So an incredibly wealthy man and a very prominent and sudden family into the social scene of New York here. So no surprise that he was a member of St. Mark's. Yeah, I mean, he's in fine company here, definitely. Well, in 1876, he died and was buried here at St. Mark's in April. Three weeks after he was buried, 
some grave robbers, what they would call back in the day ghouls, some ghouls snuck into the yard. They crept into his vault somehow. They opened up the vault and then stole his decomposing body. Then, from the poor, horrified widow, demanded a ransom of $20,000 for a return of the body. In the 1870s. In the 1870s, yes. A huge amount of money. The money was allegedly paid, and the body was returned to St. Mark's. And I guess there's still a body there in the Stuart vault. But they don't know if it was his? They, believe it or not, never confirmed that it was actually A.T. Stewart's body that was returned to the vault. Many believe that the ransom itself was never paid, and they just replaced and put another body in there to appease Miss Stewart. Now, once there was a body in there that they believed was Mr. Stewart, it was believed that they rigged the vault with an elaborate security system. Essentially, there were these pulleys that were around the door of the vault. And if someone would try to mess with it, they would be connected to the very bell of St. Mark's in the Bowery. So the bell would start ringing in the middle of the night if anyone came back to mess with the door of the vault. That is a ghastly story. So I know that we've talked about St. Mark's and the Bowery, the ghosts of like Peter Stuyvesant. Right. Certainly. Mr. <laughs> I think we talked about in the first ghost stories of New York clanking around at night. So there's a lot of disturbing stories around the church. So I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Ghostly Stuyvesant had some company. Now, finally, I should add that St. Mark's, if that wasn't enough to give you chills, St. Mark's had another cemetery across the street on 2nd Avenue between 11th and 12th. So just slightly north, you know, where John's Pizzeria is um, on 12th Street. Oh, sure. Yeah. John's Restaurant with the chicken parm. Yeah. yeah, And the great martinis. Um, It's in that space is where this former cemetery used to be. It was a free burial yard initially created for Stuyvesant's former slaves and poorer ancestors, poor congregants, and of course, later, some people of the theater would be buried here. In 1864, uh, because the city, of course, has developed so rapidly, that is super valuable real estate, you can't move the bodies of the wealthy Stuyvesants and the fishes and all these prominent figures, but this other cemetery... They exhumed all the bodies in 1864 and moved them out to Evergreen Cemetery. From a notice in the New York Times in 1864, the removal of the bodies from St. Mark's Cemetery. There are at present the remains of about 150 of the dead to be carried away. When the cemetery was closed, the trustees of St. Mark's purchased two acres in the Evergreen Cemetery. Where the bodies not disposed of by their friends will be removed. The remains of two dramatic notables, Barnes and Price, of the old Park Theater, have been removed from this cemetery. So by this time, it had been, it was a free cemetery, but had all different kinds of individuals that were there. So just to clarify, Barnes and Price are no longer under John's restaurant. <laughs> no, they've, they have, they were exhumed and moved out to Evergreen Cemetery. I would absolutely love to go find, find their tombstone. Hopefully it's been marked. So it's interesting that you would bring up Barnes and Price, two men of the theater, Greg. Mm-hmm. Men of a notable theater. Mm-hmm. In that men they, of a notable theater, In yes. that they performed down at one of New York's premier 
theatrical right. institutions. The Park Theater, right. Because in the 20th century, St. Mark's would take a turn that would be at times theatrical, that would embrace the arts. In many ways, it would become important as a performance space, as almost any other stage in New York. In 1899, St. Mark's hired a new rector, the Reverend Dr. Batten, and he kicked off the 20th century with something rather controversial. I'm speaking of hypnosis. How does hypnosis sag with, like, the Episcopalian faith here? Well, remember that still around, even though the Bowery Village is no longer existing, still along Bowery, you had no shortage of dens of sin. You had brothels, you had pubs, and other places of ill repute. And so the the good Dr. Batten was determined to cure people of alcoholism and of other problems. So he set up his own clinic in conjunction with the church to cure them using not just ministerial means, but also psychotherapy and hypnosis. He claimed a 100% success rate. Or at least he made you believe that it was 100%. 100% success rate. Taking over for him in 1911 was the Reverend Dr. William Norman Guthrie. Now, Guthrie would be at the helm here from 1911 till 37. He had a huge impact on St. Mark's Church. He opened it up to other traditions. He brought in performance art. He realized that the the neighborhood around St. Mark's had changed quite a bit. It was not really open, shall we say, to traditional Episcopal services any longer. This was no longer the Church of Alexander Hamilton and the prominent families. They had moved on to fancier and schmancier Episcopal churches. There were far fewer prominent names, of course, in the neighborhood, and you had a few people packed into tenements all around the blocks here. And Guthrie was looking around the neighborhood trying to figure out how to bring them into St. Mark's. So in 1911, he livened things up by hiring professional singers to perform during the services. In 1920, he incorporated dance into the service, which was unheard of and made some congregants really uncomfortable and scandalized some of them because of the unclothed nature of some of the dancers. Wait a minute. So we're not like, we're not talking like a waltz or even a Charleston here. There's something a little bit more interpretive, an unclothed dancing. Well, by in 1920s terms, unclothed simply meant that they were barefoot, Mm -hmm. but still they were barefoot in a church. This led to a, a split with his superior, Bishop Manning. But wait, there was more. Guthrie also brought in other religions. He brought in other traditions like Native American and Hinduism in to celebrate their traditions. That's really open-minded. He brought in famous authors to give lectures on Sunday afternoon. And then he opened something in 1923 that had quite an impact on the neighborhood. It was called the Body and Soul Clinic. Hmm. And a bit like his predecessor, Dr. Batten, Guthrie wanted to to reach out and heal the surrounding community and to treat both their soul and their bodies, or their body and soul. So patients from the neighborhood would come in, including a lot of children. They were treated for all kinds of different illnesses. At first, they would be given a full evaluation by doctors because they had a full staff, I believe, of six physicians who were on hand. And then they were given spiritual advice and instructed in meditation, which again, seems really sort of ahead of its time. Well, it seems, it's almost like an all really progressive version of what they did down in 
five points in like the 1860s where it was all about providing the people of the community with what they needed and then hopefully being able to infuse that with religious thought. Well, and quite frankly, I mean, if they would open up a clinic today where you could get free medical advice evaluations and then instructed in meditation, it would probably be (laughs) jam-packed all day. The clinic would stay open until 1932, when there was such a split with the church. The church decided they didn't want to fund this anymore because it was costing a pretty penny. It seemed a little weird. St. Mark's has really taken a left turn here, I think I can say. But is the family still associated? Where are the Stuyvesants in all of this? Because, you know, it's their original land for hundreds of years past. What's going on with them in 1940, 1950? What's happening now? Well, Greg, you bring us to the story of the last Stuyvesant. The very last male direct in the direct line of Peter Stuyvesant. Because you you still have descendants today of Rutherford Stuyvesant. But Who for, had changed his name. Yeah, yes. To understand the secret of why that doesn't really count, listen to my podcast on the Stuyvesant, New York's first apartment building. But we're talking about Augustus... Van Horn Stuyvesant, the last junior. junior. Yes. He was born in 1870 and died in 1953. And he was an independent soul and even a bit of an oddball throughout his entire life. Eccentric. He never married. And from his 40s on, he lived with his sisters uh, and really was sort of secluded. In 1924, by the way, they gave $300,000, he and his sisters, to New York Cathedral, or the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, to build its marble baptistry, which included a sculpture of Peter Stuyvesant. Mm. The same year that they gave the money to St. John the Divine, Mm. 1924, one of his sisters, Catherine, died. And even though there were weird things happening at St. Mark's Church with Guthrie, and it was kind of controversial, and he was a little more conservative, Guthrie still performed the funeral of his sister Catherine, Five years later, in 1929, they moved out of the family mansion Mm. all the way up Fifth Avenue to 79th Street into the French Chateau-style property across from the Met at number 279th Street, which he bought from Harry Sinclair of the oil company. (laughs) Yeah, a disgraced and corrupt businessman by this this time. Yeah, of of Sinclair Oil, the dinosaur. Nine years later, in 1938, his sister died, and he... Augustus Van Horn Stuyvesant Jr. inherited the entire family fortune of about $4 million. And there he stayed by himself, passing his days in seclusion. He had a male butler, a chauffeur who would drive him sometimes down to uh, visit the church a couple times a month. Vernon. Vernon was his name. Ernest Vernon. Drive him down in the Rolls Royce, and he'd go and he'd wander around the cemetery, and then he'd go and sit in the family pew. He did not, at this point, attend services at St. Mark's. He was now attending services at the swankier St. James Episcopal Church on Madison Mm. Avenue. I think he felt some pressure about being the last male heir of the Stuyvesant family. A lot of uh, weight on his shoulders, and he probably, whatever reason, knew he was not going to get married, be betrothed, and pass on the family line further. And so he decreed that upon his passing, he would be entombed in the family crypt. It would then be sealed and inaccessible. So to this day, can't actually go into... The vaults. No. 
He was the 85th and final member of the family to be entombed in the family crypt. And it's all it completely sealed. And so it contains the entirety of the New York-based Stuyvesants underneath the church. Just a couple days ago on Sunday, Greg and I stopped Mm -hmm. by the church and you just, you can visit this. I mean, you can stand above the tomb. You walk up and just head to the right of the front door. There you'll see right there lining the exterior at the... On the ground, you'll see a marker for the tomb, but it's completely inaccessible. This is our most morbid podcast to date. But let me take us to I have to never the- said the word tomb <laughs> so many <laughs> times. Well, let me take us to modern times here. The church returned to a relatively spiritually conservative era in the 50s. And then, of course, the 60s happened. And, well... With the 60s, you get the 60s. And on top of that, well, first of all, you're in the East Village here. So it's the neighborhood's become a less pleasant place to live. St. Mark's the Church itself deteriorates a little. There's actually a series, dozens, in fact, robberies and break-ins to the church during this period. There are even grim tales of thieves breaking into these old vaults, obviously not the Stuyvesant vault, breaking into these old vaults and then tossing around skulls and stealing jewelry and silver from these resting places. It's horrible. But the East Village is also, by this time, a great heart for artistic expression and for protest. And there's a huge concentration of poets and musicians by this time. So after this, I guess, a short period of just sort of normalcy, it reopens as a theater space and as a performance spot. They have a stage. I mean, it's hearkening back to this wonderful past that they have. But when you say reopens, it's still operating, of course, as a church. Oh, as a church, but reopens in this capacity, in this sort of progressive, and we're talking really progressive. It's going to get to some new heights of strangeness here. One of the very first off off-Broadway stages opens here in 1964 called The Theater Genesis. A 20-year-old Sam Shepard would debut two plays in this particular theater company. They were a very overtly masculine, brusque theater group. But in 1966, I think one of the major artistic movements of the East Village during this time, the Poetry Project, uh, got its start here at St. Mark's, featuring poetry performances and music. Such performers as Allen Ginsberg, W.H. Auden performed here, Alice Walker. Even in the early 70s, Patti Smith performed here at the church. I mean, that's an interesting... Uh, dichotomy, Stuyvesant, Patti Smith, all here within feet of each other. I just, I love it. You know, this alone would make it an iconic landmark of 60s counterculture, um, a peer of any venue that was further west in in Greenwich Village. According to the poet John Ashbery, quote, the current worldwide interest in American and even and especially New York poetry is a direct result of the presence of the poetry project of St. Mark's Church. Now, it got even more strangely 60s in 1969 with the Christian rock group Mind Garage, who performed their psychedelic church rock and roll concert here called The Electric Liturgy. Totally groovy here. It was actually broadcast on television, and they would go around the country with this. Church programs from St. Mark's of the period would would have this picture of a very bohemian, topless woman with the caption, We welcome you to the Electric Liturgy, a festival of feeling, the Electric Mass. 
Oh, it's very hair, isn't <laughs> exactly. it? We're 1969 here. Five years later in 74 would come the avant-garde and contemporary dance group Dance Space, who are still there to this day. I've seen a performance. Well, the yes. Poetry Project is still there. Of I mean, course. like I mean, they're from the 60s and early 70s, but they're they're still with us and they still inform a lot of the culture that comes out of the church here. More recently, there were a couple fires that caused some damage to the church. In 1978, there was a fire that damaged the bell and the old clock, but it was renovated in the 1980s. The rectory behind the church, well, that had another fire in, 19, in 1988. That was renovated and leased to a handful of historical preservation societies, including the Greenwich Village Society for Historical Preservation. I mean, what better hands can you be in if, as an old <laughs> structure than an actual preservation society here? Before I go, we should mention one tiny thing, the fact that there exists, of course, actual St. Mark's Place. Right, which is probably even better known than Stuyvesant Street, and which we haven't even discussed yet. No, because it's it has a separate history. Although it is named for the church, in fact, it's two blocks south of the church. It would have a major impact, of course, on counterculture in the 20s and in the 50s and, and in the 60s and 70s as well. I mean... Now, those listening, of course, right now in present time, May 2012, you can go to our blog and find information on the Partners in Preservation Initiative. And I bring it up because St. Mark's Church on the Bowery is one of 40 nominees, and essentially grant money is going to be distributed to the nominees that get the most votes. St. Mark's in particular, that portico, that cast iron portico that I had talked about, They applied for the grant money so that they can renovate that because it's having some leaky problems. It's old. I mean, that's like one of the oldest cast iron artifacts in New York almost. It's incredible. So Bowery Boys listeners have the ability right now in the next couple of weeks to vote for whichever project they think deserves to be funded with an extra grant from this organization. Whether it be the place that you've just heard us wax on about, or many other places on there, many of which we've already done podcasts on. So I think that you're going to look at the list and actually have a very hard decision. But if we've convinced you of the wonderful impact that St. Mark's has had on culture in general, that should be your choice. On the blog, BarryBoysPodcast.com, I will have many photographs of this place throughout the years, illustrations. I will look for the photographs of this Christian rock group and all the things things in between. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at BarryBoys. So thank you so much for joining us as we went way beyond Peter Stuyvesant's farm into the history of St. Mark's in the Bowery. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.